So, Genesis chapter 7, as we continue on looking at um, uh, Noah in the flood here. Good stuff tonight, uh, as always, just getting into God's Word. And so we, you know, in chapter 6, of course, we began that study looking at it and, and just kind of seeing the, the setup for it and, and building this ark. And it's interesting as we looked at kind of the, the measurements of the ark and the size of it. I mean, we all get these, these preconceived ideas of what, you know, the ark looked like from our children's Bibles or Sunday school flannel boards. That's kind of what we typically have in our mind of Noah and the ark with animals hanging out thinking, how did he do it? How did he do it? But the ark essentially would have looked more like this. When you look at the measurements, this is from Answers in Genesis and uh, the, the ark museum that they've got down in uh, Kentucky. And just, man, uh, we got to do a tour there one day. As soon as these restrictions are lifted, we'll do a tour down. Is that where it's at in Kentucky? The Art Museum, that's pretty awesome. So I got it. Anybody been there before? Come on. It's not right. It's just not right, Tina. Okay. All right. Well, let's go. We'll do it. We'll plan one. So that's um, what that arc would have looked like. And so we'll look more now tonight. You know that we've seen the build-up, chapter 6. Now we get into really the flood and all. It says in, in chapter 7, verse 1, that the Lord said to Noah, come into the ark, you and all your household." Because I've seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Now, let me stop right there. Uh, we're going to read through chunks of verses tonight, but I'm going to stop in verse 1 here. So I love that, where we read, come into the ark. Who's saying that? Who says come into the ark? God. And then, what does that mean where God is? He's in the ark. He is inviting Noah and his family to come to where he is. I think that is so awesome. And it's in the ark where Noah and his family are going to be safe from judgment, safe from the storm, the only place that they're going to be safe. I love this, and it's the first time we've seen God's word, that term, you know, come. It's an invitation given by God, and it's an invitation that is to be repeated throughout Scripture because God is an inviting God. And I want you to think that through and, and catch that because sometimes people get that idea like God is an exclusive God and that God is just walking around, kind of looking to take somebody out, and, and yet God is a God full of, uh, of compassion and, and, and blessing and grace, and he's desiring to draw people in. And we see that throughout Scripture, Isaiah 55, verse 1, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money, without price. I love that. Don't worry about what you have to bring. You just come as you are. Matthew 11, verse 20 to 30, come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, Jesus says, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. John 7, again, Jesus saying in verse 37 and 38, On the last day that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And in case you've missed them all throughout scripture, right at the very end of the Bible, God once more says, let me make sure you catch it now, okay? Revelation 22, verse 17, and the spirit and the bride say, come, come. Let him who hears say, come. Let him who thirsts, come. Whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. Don't you love that? 
Aren't you thankful that God is an inviting God and that where God is, he wants you to be as well? And we see that right here in Genesis 7 where God not only commands Noah, build an ark, but then God is in the ark and he says, Noah, come on. Come on in here, you and your family. Come be where I am because where I am is where you're going to be safe, protected, cared for. That's why Jesus says, you know, just come and abide in me. Abide in me. And there you're going to be fruitful. You're going to be blessed. Now, the reason I think we don't often take him up on his invitation is because we don't feel worthy at times. We think, oh, Lord, no, I, I'm, not, I'm not good enough. I'm not ready. Uh, I've just done too much this week. I don't think I can come. And yet God says to Noah, I've seen that you're righteous. And that's the thing is that we oftentimes don't feel righteous. We don't feel worthy. But again, we have to always come back to the work that Jesus did. Because we do not come in our righteousness. We come in the righteousness that Jesus has provided for us now. We come in Christ as we are abiding in him. That's what gives us access as we've been seeing in Ephesians, as Paul's been writing about access, boldness, and confidence now to come because we come in and through Jesus and his righteousness. Oh, we're, we're just so fortunate and so privileged people and i pray that we understand that god desires for you to be with him and for you to fellowship with him for you to be where he is and we have access tonight my friends and it's through jesus christ and how we need to yield and surrender and submit ourselves simply to jesus and be clothed in his righteousness and not our own and what a what a joy and blessing that is so noah is invited in with his family to the ark. And then we read in verse 2, and so it says, You shall take with you seven each of every clean animal, a male and his female, two each of animals that are unclean, a male and his female. Also, seven each of birds of the air, male and female, that keep the species alive on the face of all the earth. For after seven more days I will cause it to rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and I will destroy from the face of the earth all living things that I have made." So here we see now, Noah's bring, you know, the animals are, are being gathered together. Now, people often are quick to recite that Noah brought two of every kind of animal onto the ark. But here we see that he brought seven of every clean animal and two each of the unclean male and female, along with seven each of the birds of the air. And so it's important, you know, when you get those questions, now you'll know how many, you know. So when somebody says, how many animals did Moses bring on the ark? You're going to say, None. Who said that? You caught it, right? Moses didn't bring anybody on the ark. Noah. See, I was just trying to trick you. Dan, you're too smart for me. How many animals did Noah bring on the ark? Two, seven. You know, it depends what kind of animals you're talking about, right? So there you go. I try to trip people up with the Moses one sometimes, and it usually works, but that's good. So here he is. Now, why, why is he told to bring seven of the clean animals on the ark? We're not told that specifically in, in the text here, but what we do know is that after Noah was to land, they were going to be providing sacrifices. It's right there in chapter 8, verse 20, that Noah built an altar. Notice that with me. Noah, uh, chapter 8, verse 20, he built an altar to the Lord, took of every clean animal and of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. So there's Noah now being able to come and bring that offering to the Lord with these animals that uh, again, two of every animal, so that they would be, you know, reproducing, continuing on, but then extra of the clean animals, so sacrifice could be brought up, and maybe perhaps it was uh, going to be a little 
barbecue shindig going on once they got back on dry ground. And so God's providing some food, perhaps, for them. So, could be. But we read there in verse 4 that um, God's going to bring rain for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, that's a number that we see also repeated in Scripture. We see that Moses was at Mount Sinai for 40 days. The spies of Canaan were in... uh, in that land there for 40 days, spying it out. Israel's time in the wilderness lasted for 40 years. And then Jesus' temptation in the wilderness was, was 40 days. So the number 40 in Scripture represents this time of, of judging or testing. And so what we see here is this symbol, this number that's significant because God is about to display this judgment upon a world for their complete corruption and wickedness here that's being done. So 40 days, 40 nights, rain is going to come. And just that symbol, that sign of God's judgment that's coming upon a, a, just a, a wicked generation. So Noah and his family entered the ark, and they, they sit there. It's interesting, right? They sit there for seven days. God says that in verse 4, for after seven more days, I will cause it to rain. So he's invited in the ark, but then it's like seven days, I'll send rain. So Noah's kind of hanging out waiting, you know. Now, this could have definitely been a time where God is rounding up the animals and, and bringing them onto the ark there. But perhaps this is just a time, too, for Noah to wait and rest in the Lord and learn to just trust him. I mean, that could have been awkward days, awkward time. Like, okay, Lord, we're in the ark, you know. It's all ready. Let's go. Where's this... Where's this rain I've been telling all, everybody about that? You know, they've been mocking me over. Where is it? But Noah's learning just to rest in the Lord and trust him. Oftentimes, the Lord will bring us into situations where we don't know what the timing of things are going to be and what the next step perhaps is even going to be. The Lord brings us into situations oftentimes where he does not give us the next step, but just simply says, just trust me, wait and rest. And so when you're in that time of, of waiting, it's not inactivity. It's just continuing to wait on the Lord, serve him, worship him, you know, be available for him. And so here's Noah, and no doubt there was probably a few things going on on the ark, too. They had to take care of, but he's there waiting and trusting and resting in the Lord here. And in verse 5, it says, And Noah did according to all that the Lord commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood waters were on the earth. So Noah, with his sons, his wife, and his sons' wives, went into the ark because of the waters of the flood. Of clean animals, of animals that are unclean, of birds, and of everything that creeps on the earth, two by two they went into the ark to Noah, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were on the earth. Now notice what's going on. Noah didn't have to go around and start, you know, doing the, the calls to the animals, you know, and trying to round them up and that kind of a thing. He's not having to track him down. God brought all the animals right to Noah. They're being guided by the Lord, and they're under his authority and under his submission. I, I love that. All the animal kingdom is just simply following the Lord. It's, it's sadly the, the humans, <laughs> the ones made in his image that have a hard time kind of working under the authority of God. But when these animals entered the ark, again, they would have been hanging in there for a few days, waiting for, you know, the sloths to show up and finally get on board. They're all getting on. They're waiting. They're hanging out. 
seemingly no incidences. Again, there's no, no mice hanging out of cats' mouths. There's no gazelles getting chewed up by lions. You know, there, there seems to be peace on board. It's so interesting to see just God bringing all these animals together and just this peace on board. It's the same with the church, I think. It's a great picture. Because people that used to bite and devour one another are suddenly those that are coming together, living with one another, or living, yeah, at peace with one another under and through Christ. I think the ark is a, a wonderful picture of a New Testament reality that as we follow Christ and live in submission to him, we find ourselves at peace with those that we never thought possible. This is exactly what we've been looking at on Sundays, isn't it? I mean, Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 14 to 15, for he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down that middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. I love that picture. And here's these animals just under the, the, the submission to the Lord, being led of the Lord right into the ark and just at peace. And that's a great picture of us here who come from all, again, different backgrounds and experiences, and yet in Christ, in submission to Christ, there's just this newfound peace that we enjoy one with another. Verse 11 goes on to say, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep were broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened, and the rain was on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. So again, just a bit of a, a, a summary now again, going back and just filling in uh, all that's going on. Verse 14, they and every beast after its kind, all cattle after their kind, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind, every bird of every sort. And they went into the ark to Noah two by two of all flesh in which is the breath of life. So those that entered male and female of all flesh went in as God had commanded him and the Lord shut him in. Let me just stop right there. So when this flood came, it wasn't just from rain like we know it today, you know, as rain starts to fall down. No, this was a catastrophic event that had Fountains from the deep that were bursting open and coming up from the ground. And then the, it says that the floodgates were, were, or the floodgates of the ground were, were opened up. But then again, that, that windows of heaven were opened. You know, many believe again, like at creation, that there was that canopy, that, that can, vapor canopy over the earth and kind of keeping, you know, it wasn't raining and it was keeping uh, the world very protected from different things. People were living longer lives then. But in this day, it seems like that just kind of burst open this flood, uh, not only from above, but then from below coming upon them. Now, some have theorized, like with the, the, the floodgates, you know, bursting out, some have theorized that this is the origin of the Grand Canyon. Perhaps it, it didn't take millions of years to carve out as many. Believe it did. Obviously not. Could have just been 40 days from the floodgates of the earth just opening up. The structure of the Grand Canyon is actually very similar to the canyons formed even recently uh, in our recent day, at least, in, of Mount St. Helens. Now, let me read some interesting kind of facts to you here. There's an ICR article dated back in July of 1986, written by Stephen Austin. Uh, a PhD talks about the events that took place 
at Mount St. Helens because Mount St. Helens really kind of blew the lid off of a lot of things that, that people were theorizing and believing as to, you know, evolution, things that suddenly Mount St. Helens has this catastrophic event and it's like, oh, you mean it, it didn't require millions of years and stuff like that. Let me read on. It says, on the morning of May 18th, 1980, an earthquake measuring five on the Richter scale shook its way up the mountainside in Mount St. Helens. It dislodged the northern slope of the mountain causing a half cubic mile of landslide material to slide off the top of the mountain. One-eighth cubic mile of landslide went into the Spirit Lake Basin, displaying the water in some spots to over 860 feet above the pre-eruption level. Steam had been building up inside the volcano, and when the landslide moved out of the way, a blast equivalent to 20 million tons of TNT blast energy occurred. It leveled 150 square um, 150 square miles of forest in six minutes, enough trees to build 640,000 three-bedroom homes. The steam cloud moved north 550 degrees Fahrenheit at 200 miles per hour. The volcanic eruption continued for nine hours with the equivalent of 400 million tons of TNT blast energy or 33,000 Hiroshima atomic bombs. Wow. Six years later, scientists were finding some amazing things at the site, including the, the strata there were discovered rapidly forming stratification. You'll hear in school that the layers of the earth seen on a mountainside would take millions and millions of years to accumulate, but at Mount St. Helens, it took just a, a few days. Erosion, they discovered rapid erosion. Take a tour of the Grand Canyon, and the guide will explain to you that it took millions of years for the Colorado River to, to carve um, its way through that huge canyon. But at Mount St. Helens, the various flows of hot ash, water, or mud carved out their own canyons. One mud flow of March 19, 1982, cut one canyon up to 140 feet deep. So just this quick uh, change that took place geologically here, coal birthing, the tree bark from the trees also settled to the bottom of Spirit Lake, forming a layer of peat. Peat turns into coal. The coal beds are thought to have taken 1,000 years uh, of peat for each inch of coal, while Spirit Lake is making its own coal bed rapidly. So it's amazing just to see the work that these, the floods would have done where so many people are seeing things that are, are, you know, in our world today going, well, this obviously must have taken millions of years for this to form and everything. And yet we're seeing cases where, I mean, just the results of the flood can do that. The results of some catastrophic events that we've witnessed in our own day, at least some of us, um, you know, is, is causing these same kinds of things to happen. So, the windows of heaven again, we talked about that, the, the canopy suspended above the earth during creation, and then that seems to collapse, opening the windows of heaven, and with it, the protection given, and so now people's lifespans would begin to decrease that we see happening now after the flood. And then in verse 16, I love this here, it says, so those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The Lord shut him in. See, this wasn't the job of Noah to say, oh, better close the door. This wasn't the job of Noah to restrict anybody from coming in. The doors to remain open. It's God the one that says, okay, time is up. I'm going to shut the door now. I, I think that's important because I'm sure Noah would have loved to say, oh, no, sorry, can't come. We're full up. No, it's all good now. I'm sure he probably would have liked to have had a few people come in and see some good fruit from his labors of, of witnessing. But it wasn't his job to shut the door. God did it. 
Our job is not to determine who's worthy to enter in or not. We just invite people into the salvation we enjoy in Christ and leave the rest to him. I love what Jesus would say in Revelation 3, verse 7 and 8, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right? These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. This could be our, our verse right now for the church, I think. We got to pin that up on the door maybe. Um, I know your works. See, I've set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, and have kept my word, and have not denied my name. So continuing on here in Genesis 7, verse 17, we read this. Now the flood was on the earth 40 days. The waters increased and lifted up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and greatly increased on the earth, and the ark moved about on the surface of the waters, and the waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth, and all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed 15 cubits upward, and the mountains were covered. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds and cattle and beasts and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And every man, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, all that was on the dry land died. So he destroyed all living things which were on the face of the ground, both man and cattle, creeping thing and birds of the air. They were destroyed from the earth, only Noah... And those who were with him in the ark remained alive. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. I think that's kind of cool here that, you know, there's not a lot of emphasis on those that perished. The story revolves around those that are saved. And again, that's the, the heart of God, isn't it? Is that definitely none perish, but he's desiring that all would come to know him. And, and to walk in that salvation grace that he has from. And so the story revolves around what God can do in saving people through judgment. And he's provided that for us through Jesus Christ. Judgment is not anything that we ever have to worry about, be afraid of, when we've accepted Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Now, we often think that the, the flood, you know, is something that just lasted 40 days. That's the number we kind of hear a lot, a lot about, rain, 40 days, 40 nights. So we think that's, that was the, the end of the flood. But 40 days was how long the rain came down. It rained consistently for 40 days. That's a long time of straight rain. I think even for, for Vancouver measures, that's a pretty long time for straight rain. Not to mention the fountains of the deep springing up. I mean, this is just crazy, right? 40 days. But you see, the length of time that the waters were on the earth were 150 days, it says. We're going to see that this isn't the time Noah got out of the ark. He'll still be in the ark and will be for some 371 days. It's a long time to be in an ark with a bunch of stinking animals, right? Hopefully they're all hibernating. And we, we didn't mention that again. If you weren't here last week, you know, we talked a bit about, and for those that may be tuning in that missed our message before, but, you know, we, we saw there in verse um, 14, that they and every beast after its kind. It keeps repeating that. All cattle after their kind. Every creeping things that creep on the earth after its kind. See, Noah didn't have to gather or God didn't have to bring in every single kind of species of family or every kind of type of animal. He just brought every kind, every, every family. So in other words, he just has to bring like two of the dog family, two of the cat family. You know, he didn't have to bring a donkey. He didn't have to bring a horse. He didn't have to bring a zebra, right? He just brings two of the same family. And then eventually, in, in, you know, 
how that all works. You end up with different kind of crossbreeds and things like that. That's how we get all the different dogs that we have today, right? So, again, he brings all the different kinds. So it's, not, it's, it's limiting now. It's not like this whole people use this as kind of an argument like, come on. No, like, are you kidding me? A, he, a man built a boat and he had all the animals? Like, there's no way. Well, of course, he didn't bring all the animals. He just had to bring two of every kind. Seven of the clean ones, as we remember tonight here. But he had to, he had to do that. And, and again, God most likely brought very young, small animals to make them fit, make them not have to eat so much, which means they don't have to, you know, the other side of it, right? Not to do not as much cleaning going on in the ark, right? And that way, when they come off the ark, they're, they're that much more ready for reproduction. They have a longer life, right? To, you know, continue to, to mate and see now the animal kingdom begin to multiply. And so it's just, it, it's perfectly fit together. Now, a couple questions also that pop up when it comes to Noah's flood and, and people that like to kind of debate all this is that uh, some that's kind of been brought up, you know, I'd say more recently with, with some very liberal scholars is that they question if the flood was global or not. They wonder, is there evidence of a, of a real global flood? And you can talk to people in churches today, church leaders, pastors, that would kind of go, yeah, global flood, no, I don't really think that was necessary. Who might believe in a localized flood? But let's look at some of that here. If the flood was local, why did Noah have to build an ark? Couldn't God have just said, hey, Noah, the area that you're in is going to get washed out, man. So why don't you head on up to higher ground? Go move to the next area somewhere there and get to safety, right? Why did Noah have to build an ark then? It would just make sense to move him. And then why did God send animals and birds to the ark? Why, again, why couldn't God have just moved them on, caused them to migrate somewhere for a season while this localized flood takes place? And, and here's something else. If the flood was local, what did God say after the flood? He said there in, in chapter 9, skip ahead here, chapter 9, verse 15. And I'll remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud, and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant. God made a promise that I will never flood the world again in that way. If it was a localized flood, God's promise has been broken because we've seen floods happen since then. We've seen whole areas completely flooded out. And if this was a localized flood, then God's promise has not been upheld. This was a globalized flood that covered the whole earth. And God said, I will never judge the world in that way again. That's why we read in Peter that that it's not going to be by a flood, but it'll be by fire at that last judgment of the Lord. And notice in chapter 7, verse 19, what do we read there? Look at verse 19 of chapter 7. And the waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth, and all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed 15 cubits, or about 20, uh, 22 and a half feet. They, they, they prevailed 
upward, and the mountains were covered. So if God did that in just a localized way, we would have seen like water, you know, just kind of gathered over the mountains, but we got to put a boundary around it here. It's not global. It, it, it doesn't make sense, right? And so I certainly believe, and, and I don't have any reason to doubt that this was a, a global flood. And uh, I hope, you know, if you find people that question that, just give them the facts here. Now, there's great evidence to continue to build on that of a global flood. There's the historical evidence. Flood stories appear in over 40 different ancient cultures. Their accounts are filled with mythological and fanciful details not found in the biblical record. But the presence of these histories indicates the validity of the Genesis account. Secular history independently reveals there was a tremendous global flood long ago that affected many cultures of the world. It's funny how a lot of people are, are quick to bring up, oh, you believe the Bible? Oh, no, there, there's records of floods happening, you know, well before the Bible. And they try to spin things and turn things around and say, oh, no, we've got records of flood. Well, yeah, I mean, where did they get the story of the flood? Well, it's right here, Genesis 6, 7, 8. It's right here for us in God's Word. They're recording what they've seen as what God is showing us here in His Word. Then there's the geological evidence, the Grand Canyon, as we talked about already tonight. And many other spectacular counties over an area of a quarter of a million square miles, including most of Utah and Arizona and large segments of Colorado and New Mexico, especially in the Grand Canyon, as far as the eye can see, thick horizontal deposits of various types of sediments rest comfortably upon one another from the bottom of the canyon up to the top. So such uniform levels over such great areas can only be accounted for by the rapid action of the flood of Noah's time. Evolution with its billions of years cannot account for the evidence of the rapid and catastrophic formation of these uniform deposits. And then lastly, what else we got? We got the fossil evidence. I love what Ken Ham says. He says, if there was a global flood, you would expect to find billions of dead things laid down by water buried in rock all over the earth. And what do you find? Billions of dead things laid down by water buried in rock all over the earth. Everywhere you go, you keep seeing the fossil evidence of a global flood. There's abundance of evidence for us here. Scoffers, however, they, they choose to remain deliberately ignorant and push it aside. They want to, as Romans 1 tells us, suppress the truth. They want to push it down. It's right there. They, they, they don't have a real argument against it, but they want to suppress it and not deal with it because they like to simply keep God out of the mix here. Well, how are we doing here? Let's, oh yeah, uh, we got time. Genesis 8, we can, we can um, cruise through this here. And so we read in chapter 8, verse 1, that God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the animals that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind to pass over the earth and the water subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were also stopped. And the rain from heaven was restrained and the waters receded continually from the earth at the end of the 150 days the waters decreased then in verse 4 the ark rested in the seventh month the seventh day of the month on the mountains of Ararat and the waters decreased continually until the 10th month in the 10th month on the first day of the month the tops of the mountains were seen now it's interesting there in verse 1 we read 
that God remembered Noah. So you read that and you kind of think, oh, like God got a little bit busy, tied up with other stuff, and Noah's like, God, still in the ark here with all the stinking animals. Where are you? Come on, God. We're, we're done. It's not like God kind of got busy, distracted, and moved on. No, the idea here, and they kind of put this into this anthropomorphic type terminology, which is like trying to equate God with our own human kind of thinking and understanding. But really what this means is that not that God forgot him, but that God is now, again, turning his attention to Noah to carry out his purposes. That's that idea when God, you know, remembers. It's like, I haven't forgotten you, God, but in my time now, now I'm going to direct my attention to you and take care and fulfill these purposes and plans that we have. And maybe we feel like that at times, like Noah felt. Maybe we've gone through those seasons where we're like, God, where are you? Have you forgotten about me? And, and maybe there's a time of testing that we've been through and working through. But we have to understand, God never, never forgets, never forsakes. He never leaves you. God never is is too far from helping. But what he does is he allows you to simply learn that idea of faith, trust, dependence on him. He's not going to allow you to, to bear anything you can't handle. He, he comes by your side. He is faithful. And here's that reminder to us that there's Noah and here's God now carrying out his purposes and his plans in Noah's life. It says that the winds passed over the waters. Wind is that Hebrew word ruach, and it's the same word used for the word spirit in Genesis 1, verse 2. So we see that the spirit is active again, just like it was there in creation, hovering over the waters. Now that wind, that spirit is kind of blowing out the spirit of God, working through the word of God now that brings about that new creation in our lives. That's how he works today. Takes the word of God, the spirit of God takes that plants it upon the people of God, and just brings about that new life as we begin to see unfolding here in this story of Noah. So Noah, he, he's been hanging out in the ark here for a while. It's been about 224 days now for Noah when you start to kind of add up the, the time frames that we've been seeing here, but there's still another 40 days added on to that now. It says in verse 6, so it came to pass at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made. And then he sent out a raven, which kept going to and fro until the waters had dried up from the earth. He also sent out for himself a dove to see if the waters had receded from the face of the ground. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot. And she returned in the ark to him, for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and drew her into the ark to himself. And he waited yet another seven days. And again, he sent the dove out from the ark. Then the dove came to him in the evening, and behold, a freshly plucked olive leaf was in her mouth. And Noah knew that the waters had receded from the earth. Verse 12. So he waited another seven days and sent out the dove, which did not return again to him anymore. So again, there's that sign now that we got some dry land here. Now, these two birds, I think, are an interesting picture because these two birds kind of represent our, our two natures that are at work here. The sin nature or the flesh nature. And then we've got the spirit nature, the, the new man in Christ. See, the raven, what happened? Sent the raven out, doesn't come back. The dove came back because it didn't find any place to, to rest. But the raven found some place. What did the raven find? Probably 
a carcass that was floating along the, the water deciding or just, you know, somewhere finds just flesh that it was attracted to. It fed on the flesh of a, a dead carcass most likely. But the dove came back because there's no suitable resting place. And that's kind of the, the, the nature that we have at war sometimes where there's that side that the old man that wants to feed on the flesh. But I pray that we're those that are, are feeding the spirit. The new man saying, I don't want to go out and rest on things that are unsuitable, unhelpful, unprofitable. I want to, I want to rest in what the Lord has for me. Our place of rest and comfort needs to be in Jesus. And that's a great picture we see with these two birds here. And then in verse 19, or sorry, verse 13. It came to pass in the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, that the waters were dried up from the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and indeed the surface of the ground was dry. And in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dried. Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife, and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and cattle and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, so that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. Verse 18. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every animal, every creeping thing, every bird, and whatever creeps on the earth, according to their families, went out of the ark. Now, God originally told Noah to come. And now he tells Noah to do what? Go. It's time to go, Noah. See, there's a time of coming and, and, and learning and growing in Jesus, but there's also a time of, of going, right? Jesus told his disciples to go into all the world and preach the gospel. So we're to come so that we grow, but we grow so that we can go. We grow so that we can go and, and share what we are learning and receiving from the Lord and pass that on to others around us. You come in by his presence, and then you go out in his power. And you be that witness of all that the Lord is doing. And, and, and so, no doubt, no one in his family, well, not a lot of people to witness to. And a few of the animals that they've been hanging out with on the ark. But now as, as, you know, multiplication begins to happen, that story that they've got of what God has done in their lives is going to be a great witness and testimony here. Verse 20. It says, then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and he took of every clean animal and every clean bird, and he offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled the soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I've done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, Winter and summer and day and night shall not cease. So that's interesting, that last verse there. It seems like they're setting up, some people believe that the flood caused such a, a catastrophical upheaval that that's kind of when the earth perhaps was tilted on its axis and, and, and that's how we've begun to have the different seasons now after the flood. That's kind of an idea and you can take that as you want. But um, interesting, what's the first thing that Noah does when he gets off the ark? builds an altar he presents a sacrifice he he shows his devotion to the lord and notice it was pleasing to the lord the lord smelled a soothing aroma the lord was blessed by that thankfully 
We're no longer living in the days of sacrifices. But we're told to offer our lives a living sacrifice under the Lord. It says in Romans 12, 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And I pray that we are those that are, are looking to please the Lord and serve the Lord by laying our lives down, saying, God, my life is yours. I, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you, God. You're everything. And so, Lord, I give you everything. I give you my life. And we lay our lives down as that sacrifice for him to use and, and work through. I love the, just those, those pictures that we see in the, the, the story of the flood, Noah and his family, completely safe and protected as they're in the ark. I'm, I'm sure there might have been times where they wanted to jump ship, but it was their perseverance, in their perseverance, that they were safe. And there might be times where you feel like jumping ship, but you see, it's only as you remain in Christ that you'll be safe. The seas, oh, they might get rough at times, but as you abide in Christ, nothing can take you down. We're in Christ. We're safe in him. And the story of the ark where Noah and his family are invited in, they know that that is the place of, of safe dwelling. And so too it is for us with Jesus. As we abide in him, that's the place of safe dwelling, no matter what storms might come. And we're, we're delivered through it. But not only is there our persevering there is God's preservation for us it's a wonderful work of balance happening here God preserves you and he does so in a few ways he he preserves you according to his promises to you Jude 24 now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy he preserves you according to his power for you first Peter 1 verse 4 to 5 you who are kept by the power of God, through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And God preserves you according to his presence with you. Jesus said in John 10, verse 27 to 29, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Praise the Lord. May we continue to persevere in faith and obedience and know that God is preserving us as we remain in him. He sees us through. Boy, and that's a promise I'm, I'm holding on to tonight here specifically. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for tonight and this great word and, and story that's more than just a story. This is reality. This is what you've done, God, and, and, and you preserved a family through judgment, and you've taught us, Lord, that there is safety in you. There's salvation that's found in you and only in you. And Lord, we want others to find that, others to know that, others to find that safety, that comfort that you bring, Lord. And so I pray that you would encourage us tonight and lead us into just that closer walk with you and dependence upon you. And may we as a church just see others come to know you, Lord, during this time that we live now. So we pray these things in your awesome name. Amen. Amen.
Good night, everybody on the live feed there.